no matter how reasonable your argument is, if it doesn't appear reasonable, nobody's going to listen. Do you feel more naturally persuaded when somebody is trying to force an idea onto you or when you come to the conclusion yourself that there is one principle above all other principles when it comes to persuasion? And that is that you must work with the grain of human nature and not against it. Hey everyone, this is What's Your Pastor Didn't Tell You. Today I'm on with David Dockery, and we're going to talk about how you can convince your Christian brother of pretty much anything. Hey David, how are you doing today? What are we going to be talking about, and what is your background in this discussion? Uh, hi Zach, my name is David, as you introduced me, and um, today we want to talk a little bit about religious disagreement and persuasive techniques that we can use in religious disagreement, especially between Christians, because this is a really important uh, topic. As for my background and how I got involved in this discussion. Um, I am a PhD student at the University of Texas A&M. I'm very early career, so I don't have a whole lot of you know, stuff published or anything yet, but I have presented some at conferences and I've been involved in uh, Christian communication for quite a while uh, now, at least as far as my, as I reckon it. Um, I, as for how I got involved, I suppose it can go all the way back to when I was like 17 years old. So one in my 17th year for Christmas, my parents gave me a little book called Thank You for Arguing by Jay Heinrichs. Apparently, I was a very argumentative teenager. Uh, so what did my parents do? They gave me a book for it. And I'm very grateful for them doing that because this book really changed the way I looked at the world. And it got me started on this journey to studying rhetoric, you know, which is the art of persuasion. And so I read that little book cover to cover, started carrying it around with me. And I thought, man, this is really great. I want to know more about this. So time came for me to go to college. I majored in communication and I went through that. You know, I was on the debate team for a little bit, um, gave lots of speeches. You know, that's what a lot of my classes were about persuasion, public address. And I finished up my undergraduate degree and I decided, you know, what? I don't know enough about communication yet. I want to learn more. So I applied to grad school and I ended up getting an MA at Wake Forest, which turned out to be a, a pretty good school. Um, God really blessed me there. And after that, I decided, you know what? I still don't know enough about communication. So I applied to uh, graduate school again, and now I'm pursuing my PhD at Texas A&M, which is a wonderful school. I love the Aggies and um, I've been extraordinarily blessed. And it wasn't just a desire to understand communication. Um, it was also uh, there. My Christian faith also really influenced me in this desire because around the same time, especially when I was in my undergraduate degree, I became interested in how Christianity related to the broader culture at large. Um, I uh, was mentored by a lot of great people uh, in the church and, I decided that I also really fell under the influence of reading philosophers like William Lane Craig and Alvin Plantinga. And I was really inspired by their story of how they went into the academy and, you know, performed well in their field and just did a very good job while trying to provide a Christian witness. And I thought to myself, you know what, that's something that I want to do. Uh, but I looked around, and I realized that the field of philosophy had a lot of great Christians in it already. And uh, not that there's not more work to do there, but I believe that God has really worked there. So I decided I wanted to 
uh, pursue communication, which is something else I was already interested in. And it turns out there's a lot of great Christians in the field of communication, too. I just wasn't as aware of them. So I've been really blessed to be involved in that. As for things, as things stand right now, um, I don't have like a very specific research direction I've decided on yet, but I am really interested in this topic of Christianity and disagreement. And my goal is to do research that will help the church. So, yeah, that's my basic background behind this whole discussion. And of course, I believe I make this sound like it was just me making decisions and stuff, but I believe God's hand was behind it the whole way. Um, I came, I was very blessed to have come to the Lord in a believing family uh, at a young age. So I definitely see God's providential hand behind all this. So yeah, that's my background. That's awesome. Um, a question. So I don't know if you can see it. Maybe my screen is just being weird. Um, your chair, like, is it like a rocking chair? Or, yes. Okay. Do you think, it is it possible that's moving or do you think the camera might be moving? Uh, I think it's the chair moving. Uh, okay. I mean, if it, it's not a huge deal, um, but I'll try to keep but, it more steady. <laughs> this is like you the get excited. wall I have in my apartment. Uh, <laughs> so I was nice. <laughs> I was opting for a neutral background. Uh, yeah. Smart. Um, Okay, yeah. So something that I really appreciated with uh, your input in on this topic is that, you know, I gave you some questions, future questions to ask you for this. And you went and, and you said, well, first, we got to start with the Bible. We got to start with what the Bible says on this topic. And I thought that was really awesome. So, uh, David, can you give us just some general thoughts on what does the Bible teach about disagreement and how we're supposed to do it? Okay, so... When it comes to the topic of disagreement, especially between Christians, the very first place, as you said, we have to look is the Bible. This is God's revelation to us. This is how God wants us to handle things. So I think and God says a lot about communication. The Bible is chock full of commands and instructions regarding how we should communicate with each other. So I think instead of tackling each and every one of these verses, I think it's really important to recognize sort of the underlying principle that the Bible talks about. And the goal of the church is unity. So when Jesus prayed the high priestly prayer in John 17, he asked God to grant the church unity. Uh, he said, I'm going to go ahead and quote him here. My prayer is not for them alone, them being the disciples, later the apostles. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and had loved them even as you have loved me. This is Jesus's vision for the church. He wants us to be one undivided family united in our love for each other. And when we are unified, we reflect the nature of God because God is unified. He's three persons, but he's unified in love. So when the church looks like that, 
the more it looks like God and the better we are at communicating our message to the unbelieving world. Uh, but of course, if you've spent any appreciable amount of time in a church, you know that's often what not what the church looks like. We're full of uh, divisions and disagreements on all kinds of issues, ranging from uh, you know what kind of music we want to sing to you know the age of the earth to um, and all kinds of stuff. So obviously this is not ideal, and the church has not lived up to the ideal. But the, the good news there is that the Bible has discussed what happens when we don't live up to the ideal. So of course, you know, Jesus's prayer is what the, the way things should be, but what happens when things don't go according to plan? Well, the book of 1 Corinthians talks an awful lot about this. And Paul is really taking the Corinthian church to task for their disunity and all the things that have gone wrong. Now, in the very opening of the book of Corinthians, he uh, you know, really skewers them for saying, I'm a follower of Paul, or I'm a follower of Apollos, or I'm a follower of Jesus. You know, you get these holier than thou. And what this was really doing was not actually purifying their doctrine. It was just chopping the church up into these smaller and smaller sections. And then later on, he gets to a really um, intense problem, which is the problem of how they were handling the Lord's Supper, you know, the love feast. So in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, I'm, I'm going to quote him here because nobody can say it better than Paul. He says in verse 18, In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have been differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this matter? Certainly not in this matter. So clearly Paul is incredibly upset about the way the Corinthians are treating the Lord's Supper. Why? Because they're treating it in a way where they are not united in love. The rich will come in and, you know, in this area, the Lord's Supper is like a supper. You know, it's a meal that they would eat together. And part of the ideal here is that it feeds the poor, too. But the rich were coming in and they were eating their, you know, big feast that they brought with them. And the poor had nothing. And this was not the way that the church was supposed to be. So this naturally results in two factions. And this is a division, right? So the question is, is this division wrong? Well, in, some, in one sense, it is wrong. It's wrong that it exists. There shouldn't be this kind of division. But in another sense, it's a division that has to exist. Why? Because people who do the right thing and people who do the wrong thing are naturally distinct from each other. So there was one possible way to unity here, of course. The people who were celebrating the Lord's Supper wrongly could have said, you know what? In the interest of unity, we are going to treat the Lord's Supper the same way as the people who are profaning it and taking it irreverently are taking it. 
And in that sense, the Corinthian church would have been united. But do you think Paul would have been happy with that kind of unity? Well, of course not. Uh, unity in sin is not a unity worth having. So Paul was, um, so clearly there's a division that had to happen here. And we know that Paul is not happy when people unite in sin because there are other occasions in the Corinthians church where everybody got along with the sin. You know, a good classic example here is the couple who had incest and the whole church seemed to be okay with this incest. And Paul's like, no, this is wrong. <laughs> this is, you should excommunicate these people. So the lesson here is that it is never right to do wrong. If you are firmly convinced that your church is going down the wrong path or teaches false doctrine, then you have a responsibility not to follow. And that's a kind of division that the Bible allows. So practically speaking, how should you respond? Well, remember Jesus's prayer. He wants us to be united in love. Love builds up. It's about restoring people to the right path. So... Ideally, you don't, you try to avoid uh, dividing the church as much as possible. You know, maybe you start this with a private conversation, say, hey, brother, I think that uh, you're wrong here. I think that this is an important thing that we need to discuss. And don't do this lightly. You know, don't just pick a fight to be picking a fight. Uh, that's contrary to God's will for unity in the church. And of course, these private disagreements, uh, they may eventually have to become more public. This is especially the case in stuff like clergy abuse. And I'm not an expert on that, so I'm not going to you know, talk too much about that. But there are certainly issues that need to be brought before the whole church. But don't jump to the nuclear option first. Always try to hash things out person to person first and to not have these conversations with the goal of humiliating the other person, but to have like this constructive, you know, path to restoration. And in case my word is not enough for like this whole being uh, cautious about our communication, uh, I think it's really important to pay attention to what James says, because if there's one principle about communication, the entire Bible, it's that communication should be careful and deliberate and only after you listen. Uh, James says, uh, James 1, 19 through 20 here, I'm going to read from the NIV. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to become angry because anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. And later he's even more emphatic about the dangers of idle speech. You know, in James 3, 6, he says, the tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the course of one's life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. I really think we should stop and dwell on James' point for a moment. Think about how powerful language is. Think about how few words it takes to change someone's life forever. Guilty, your honor. I want a divorce. It's cancer. The ability to communicate is enormously powerful. And if we do not wield this power responsibly, we absolutely become gateways to hell. And in effect, that's what we do when we divide the church. We're dividing the army that's besieging the gates of hell.
So, you know, just some questions to ask before you get into an argument with a fellow believer. Is it worth it? Am I honoring God with this conversation or am I just boosting my own ego? Are my words going to help my partner to heaven or expose him to hell? And if you can't answer those three questions in good conscience, I encourage you to just let it drop. Some arguments aren't worth having. But if you decide, to, but if you answer those questions and decide, yes, this is a conversation that we need to have, then that's why we should learn some tools to have these conversations in a constructive, persuasive way. Yeah, that's really good input there. So say you have a view on Christianity, you know, whatever it is. Um, what are some approaches different people take? And obviously it's an infinite amount of different approaches, but what are some different approaches, common approaches that people take? And what would you say is the best approach? Uh, that's a great question. And it's one that people have pondered for a very long time. Um, I think it's probably best to start with the wrong way to approach persuasion. And, and I do want to start by saying I'm going to talk about persuasion here. Because let's face it, when you're in a conversation where you think something important is at stake, uh, we want to persuade the other person to what we think is the right view. In fact, I think it would be irresponsible to just say, nah, you know, you have your thing and I have mine. You know, let's just agree, disagree. When it's an issue where you can't agree, disagree, you got to try to persuade the other person. So I want to talk about how to do that. Now, the wrong way to do this is what I call the machine gun method of persuasion. And the, the machine gun method is the natural way of arguing. It's where we have like this list of reasons or facts. And it's like we load them up in this magazine. And we plug it into our argument rifle and we hold down the trigger. And we're just like spitting facts at each other. This does not really work, or at least not usually. And the reason for that is that we assume what's going to happen is that the our partner is going to just collapse under the sheer weight of our logic and facts. And this is not what happens because human nature is uh, resistant to facts at the best of times and impervious to them at the worst. So this machine gun method is we got to find a way to get past this. This is not a good way to do that. The good news is there are many, many, many sophisticated ways to persuasion. I, uh, I don't have time to survey the entire field here, but I do want to go over just a couple tools I think are really handy. So maybe the most classic approach to persuasion of all time was uh, codified by Aristotle in his book, The Rhetoric. Now, Aristotle was not a Christian. Uh, he was around before Christianity uh, took the world by storm. However, his principles are still applicable to Christian contexts. So Aristotle said that there are two basic kinds of argument. There are, he calls them proofs. Now, when I say proof here, I don't mean something really rigid and formal like a mathematical proof. This is a proof that's like probable, you know, something that's likely to persuade somebody. And these come in two types. There's artistic proofs and inartistic proofs. Now, an inartistic proof is like the murder weapon in a trial, right? Uh, the idea is that you just found it out there in the world and you present it to the audience and say, see, this is the murder weapon and this is evidence of why the defendant is guilty. The reason it's called an inartistic proof is because the speaker didn't have to make it up. Uh, artistic here is really has my, not like paintings and drawings, but in the sense that it's artificial, it is artifice. When you are artificially 
Uh, art of his, the art of making things. And this is where artistic cruiser proves you make from your own talent as a speaker. Uh, so since you didn't have to invent the murder weapon through your own talents of speech, uh, it's an inartistic proof. But there are artistic proofs and they come in three types. There is artistic proofs from character, artistic proofs from reason, and artistic proofs from emotion. And you may know these better as ethos, logos, and pathos. So let's start with um, ethos. Now, it's always a good idea to start with character when you are trying to persuade somebody. And this is something that we all intuitively notice. We all trust, uh, tend to be persuaded by people we trust. If Grima Wormtongue, if you like Lord of the Rings, you know Grima Wormtongue, right? He's the guy who's whispering the evils into the king's ear. You know, he's like the uh, the archetype of the evil persuasion dude. If he walks into your coffee shop or something and starts telling you about the glories of Lord Sauron, how everybody should become, uh, convert to Sauronism or something like that, you're probably not going to trust that guy because you're thinking, man, you know, he he seems kind of evil, right? You know. <laughs> You would much rather trust Gandalf, right? Because Gandalf is wise and stately and uh, so forth. So why why do you trust Gandalf instead of Grima Warrington? Well, you trust him because uh, Aristotle said you trust guys like that for three reasons. You trust them because they seem practically wise. They know what they're doing. They know how to solve practical problems. They seem like good people, good virtuous people. And they seem to have your best interests at heart. Uh, so the technical Greek names for these are phronesis, practical wisdom, arete, virtue, and eunoia, which is a goodwill, you know, just the sense of having your best interests at heart. Uh, so you get up on stage if you're giving a speech or something, and you construct these by means of language. Uh, Paul does this very frequently. Uh, for example, when Paul is constructing his arete, he talks about how much he's labored on behalf of the church and um, how you know he talks about his Jewish heritage before Jewish audiences to connect himself to them. These are ways of building virtue, showing that he has good stuff. You know, this is a guy you need to listen to. And paradoxically with Paul, a lot of some of the ways he builds his virtue is by talking about how terrible a person he is talks about how I was one untimely born. You know, I'm not worthy of being an apostle, but it was God's grace uh, that put me where I am. And that's kind of a uniquely Christian way of building virtue. But this is stuff that even the apostles used. Uh, they were not averse to using these persuasive techniques. And as far as like phronesis goes, uh, you know, that uh, practical wisdom, it's important to clarify here that this is not like theoretical wisdom. So our, our analytic philosopher friends, I love them, but they don't really most of the time talk about phronesis. They talk about um, Sophia, which is this theoretical knowledge, philosophia. You know, it's love of wisdom. Uh, and this is theoretical knowledge, solving really abstract math problems. And this is knowledge worth having, but it's not usually the kind of knowledge that makes somebody an ultra trustworthy and persuasive person. Uh, because when it comes down to brass tacks, you want somebody who can solve the, the problem uh, out there in the world. And of course, with Unoya and Goodwill, this is about saying, hey, I have these things and I want to serve you. 
Now, this kind of servant leadership ideal in the Bible is a good way of showing this. Uh, a, per, a leader in the Bible is not supposed to lord his position over somebody else. He's supposed to uh, serve others. So those are the three things that make somebody trustworthy. Now, this is their credibility. This is their ethos. So before I continue on any further, any questions about that or? Nope, that's good. Awesome. So I think now it's a good, uh, having like established your trust with the audience, um, it's a good idea to move on and talk about logos, which is the appeal to reason. Now there's a very important distinction I want to make here between logos, as we're talking about here, and logic. So logic we typically think of as aimed at finding the truth. Um, you know, the Greeks called this dialectic, this back and forth conversation. And the goal is to find the truth, right? Well, Lagos is not strictly about that. It's about the appearance of reason. Uh, now, of course, we want this to be reasonable. Uh, but the fact of the matter is there's lots of people out there who appear reasonable who are not, in fact, reasonable. Uh, and this is where some of like the sketchy reputation of things like rhetoric comes in because you have these guys who stroll in as like, ah, you should listen to me. And they sound very reasonable, but they're using all kinds of logical fallacies and awful stuff. So don't use logical fallacies and stuff. But you do have to understand that no matter how reasonable your argument is, if it doesn't appear reasonable, nobody's going to listen to it. And that's really important. So Aristotle really talked a lot about this because he thought this was the substance of persuasion. Um, now, there are two basic kinds of arguments, right? There's a deductive form of argument and an inductive form of argument. Now, the deductive form of argument is, um, in the sense we're talking about here, it's arguing from universals to particulars. I know that there's lots of different definitions of deductive arguments, but that's the definition we're going to use here. And uh, the classic deductive argument is like all men are mortal. You know, that's your first premise. And the second premise is Socrates is a man. Therefore, Socrates is mortal. Simple as that. But of course, we use much more sophisticated syllogisms. When we think about it, these syllogisms can get awfully dry. Like everybody knows Socrates is a man. You know, if you've been around very long, you know, who's Socrates? Well, you don't think he's a chicken or something. You know he's a man. And you also probably know all men are mortal. You know, that's part of what it means to be a man, is that men must die. So therefore, Socrates is more. You don't get a whole lot of new information about this. Instead of presenting all these premises and going through each one of them and supporting them, which is a perfectly fine way of doing things, but it's also kind of clunky, you can simplify this into what Aristotle called an enthymeme. An enthymeme is an argument based off of audience knowledge. So the idea here is that the audience already knows one of these premises. So let's say the audience knows all men are mortal. And then you say, well, Socrates is just a man. Well, what's the audience going to conclude? Oh, Socrates is mortal. And the benefit of an enthymeme is that the audience is doing half the work. Think about your own experience being persuaded. Do you feel more naturally persuaded when somebody is trying to force an idea onto you or when you come to the conclusion yourself? That's what an enthymeme does. It leads the audience to a conclusion. And that bypasses those mental defenses that come up when the machine gun method gets used. Because when the machine gun method gets up, you whip out your own gun and you find cover. 
using enthymeme, the audience is slowly coming to the same idea you have, but it's very subtle. You know, subtlety is the key here. But of course, the enthymeme is for deductive arguments. We also use arguments from probability, which are inductive arguments. Now, it's sort of the classic inductive argument is our experience of the sun rising. The sun has risen every day of our lives, uh, if you live in you know certain places. Uh, so it is logical to assume that the sun will rise tomorrow. Uh, is it certain? Well, you know, if you live near the North Pole, Maybe tomorrow the sun doesn't rise. So it's not a certain proof, but it's a, uh, a very probable proof. It's highly probable that you're going to experience, have some experience of the sun rising tomorrow. Uh, so the really sophisticated way of doing this is probability statistics. You know, this is what researchers do. They get out there and they do experiments and run surveys and stuff, and they're trying to uh, find probability examples so that their findings apply to groups outside that narrow group of people they surveyed or did an experiment on. And so you have like 99% of college students get less than six hours of sleep a night. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not, but uh, it wouldn't surprise me if it was. But the point here is statistics are very abstract. Numbers are very abstract. They are foreign to our world. Think about how you experience your life day to day. You experience your life primarily in the world of things you can touch and see and taste and smell and hear. Uh, you experience it moment to moment rather than the, in this timeless abstract world of mathematics and statistics. So Aristotle, he didn't know a whole lot about probability statistics and stuff. That was a, a later invention, but his insight remains good, which is that you can illustrate these probabilities using examples. So if you're trying to tell, uh, argue that there should be like a curfew or something for college students, then you might cite that statistic about 99% of college students getting less than six hours of sleep a night. And then you would jump into the example of Bob. And Bob is a freshman at um, Aristotle College. And Look at how his terrible his grades have begun because he's not sleeping enough. Instead, he's going out to party with his friends or something. Now, this is an example. It takes that abstract world of mathematics and makes it concrete to your viewer. Uh, so those are like the two basic approaches to logos. This, these are things that make an, apart, uh, sorry, an argument appear reasonable. Any questions about logos before I move on? Yep, should be good. All right. So the last artistic proof is perhaps the most infamous of the artistic proofs, and that's pathos, the appeal to emotion. Um, now, pathos is not as simple as it first seems. We call it the appeal to the emotions, right? But this appeal is actually about working with the audience's character. So you'll notice, you know, Aristotle has these three artistic proofs. And if you think about it, it corresponds roughly to a speaking situation, right? You have a proof from the speaker's character, the ethos. You have a proof from the idea, the message being sent, the logos, the word. And you have the pathos, which corresponds to the audience. So when you're using a, a pathetic appeal, 
which is not you know a low and miserable appeal. It's a, a an appeal that works with the character of the audience. It stirs their emotions. So this appeal is always good to put at the very last part of an argument because it's about stirring people to act. Emotions move people. They get them to do stuff. Whereas uh, Logos is really good for like getting people to accept ideas. Um, and this is stuff where like metaphors and stuff like that really come in handy because it's more about making that concrete. Uh, if you are talking to somebody who really loves animals and you are trying to communicate the gravity of Christ's sacrifice for us on the cross, you know, the metaphor of Jesus, the lamb who was slain, that might really resonate with that audience uh, because they might really care about lambs and creatures and stuff. And, you know, the sheer horror and awfulness of having of the image of this innocent creature being slain for somebody else uh, sins, you know, that also might help communicate the gravity of one's own sin that a horrific act like this was necessary. And so there are different emotions that stoke different things. Um, you know, fear classically is often used to get people to not do something. Rage is really good at getting people to, it's unpredictable, but gets people to act really reliably, which is why a lot of clickbait stuff appeals to your anger. Um, but these are, uh, this is just the basic idea of pathos, you know, appealing to emotions that resonate with the audience. So yeah, that's the basic Aristotelian approach to persuasion. Earn their trust, frame the idea in a compelling way, and stir the emotions of the audience to act. And this is a much more coherent and subtle way of communicating ideas than the machine gun, which is just spitting stuff out at people. So any questions about that you know, Aristotelian idea? Yeah, so I'm actually curious. So if you're like, you know, specific example situation, say you have like a specific theological belief and you have a friend that disagrees with you. Like, can you give us like a brief example of how you would go, uh, uh, go about using these principles that you've been talking about to uh, discuss with him? Oh yeah. Um, I think maybe a really great example of this might be like uh, C.S. Lewis and Tolkien's relationship. Because remember that C.S. Lewis, you know, he wasn't always a Christian, but he became friends with Tolkien. And, you know, one of the things they disagreed about was, well, you know, does Christian, uh, is Jesus just another one of these rising and dying God myths? And, you know, Tolkien could have done, well, I'm going to whip out, you know, the 10 volume tomes about the history of religion and mythology and stuff. But instead, you know, Tolkien was being a good friend to him. He cultivated that ethos. He won C.S. Lewis's trust. Uh, but instead, he says, well, you know, maybe Jesus is the true myth. And that struck a chord with Lewis. He was like, yeah, you know, maybe that's right. And that was a way of like framing his logos, you know, with an example. Uh, or I guess there's an enthymeme there. It'd take me a minute to like break down what exactly that enthymeme is uh, but yeah that's more in the context of like evangelism if you are talking uh like what's a common issue like maybe calvinism versus arminianism or something like that you know this is a, one of these very common things in the church if you're an arminian that goes to a primarily calvinist church 
it might not be such a great idea to get it running guns blazing, talking about how terrible Calvin was and how he was wrong and how he misread the scriptures. And it's probably a good idea to demonstrate that you know something about this topic, you know, that you're a well-read person, uh, demonstrate that you care about this community. Um, you know, in other words, be involved in that church and demonstrate that you are, you know, earnestly following the path of discipleship and, care about the spiritual lives of the people you're talking to. And then, you know, when the, the right venue comes up, you know, maybe a Sunday school class or something like that, you know, maybe bring up some objections to Calvin, you know, it, thought experiments are like a really classic example of like um, examples, you know, making the abstract concrete so, you know, what, what's one of the common objections to, like, compatibilism? Well, it could be, like, is God not taking some of the moral blame if he treats us like a mad scientist who has hooked up electrodes to our brain? You know, like he presses the button and we raise a hand. And uh, so if Adam and Eve ate from the good tree of good and evil, but they were like marionette puppets or something like that, does that not? make God guilty of sin according to the Bible's own criteria. And if that does, that means there's a problem here. Either the Bible's wrong or God's contradictory or Calvinism has gone wrong somewhere in its interpretation. So that might be the Logos way of framing that, you know, instead of just jumping into these really, you know, formal logic or something like that. Maybe there's a time for that. But I think this mad scientist thought experiment might be a better way to go forward. And then, of course, pathos, stuff like um, we see pathos appeals in these conversations all the time. But if you're an Arminian, it might be something like, do you really believe that your son or your daughter uh, has no choice over whether they are going to heaven or hell? This is one of those really pressing questions that tends to come up in Calvinist Arminian debates. So, yeah, those are two possible contexts I could see using something like this. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And to answer your question about uh, Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, it seems like um, when, you, when you said, you know, maybe Christianity is the true myth, maybe what C.S. What, what that did was, you know, it's a question, made, made C.S. Lewis think, you know, it wasn't, you weren't saying, Hey, C.S. Lewis, it is the true myth. And, you know, like, accept it. It's, have you considered this? And C.S. Lewis takes it and he goes, hmm, is that possible? Hmm, that, that might work. And he comes to that conclusion himself. So, yeah, that, that idea of letting people come, come to their own conclusions, I, what I've seen is, is very important. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. And of course, I'm not a, a Lewis or Tolkien scholar. So if that, I've misremembered that somehow, uh, please forgive me. Uh, that's the way I heard that conversation go down. Awesome. <laughs> All right. Did you have any more on that one as far as, uh, you know, how we should engage others or do you want to keep going? I did have um, one more theory that if we have time, I could go over. Uh, I don't know how yeah, much time we, we have. Uh, this one is really handy when you're on the other side of an argument. So Aristotle's 
theory I talked about is good if you're the one presenting an argument, you're crafting your argument. But sometimes you need to take a step back and see, okay, is this conversation going anywhere? And this is what stasis theory is really useful for. Uh, stasis theory was a theory that's very ancient, you know, goes back to the Greeks and the Romans. And it's about finding um, the point of clash, the point of disagreement, because we've all been in conversations where it feels like we're just talking past each other and we're not getting anywhere. So how can you escape that? Well, stasis theory is a really good way to do that. And stasis here means like the point of disagreement. So there's lots of different versions of stasis theory, um, but I want to go over what I think might be like the classic version. And it says that there are four main points of disagreement. So the first one is called the stasis of conjecture. The stasis of conjecture is about the facts. Did something happen or did it not happen? Does the thing exist or not? So if the argument is over the resurrection of Jesus um, and one side believes that it didn't happen and another side believes that it did happen, then that is a stasis over conjecture. You're arguing about the fact of the matter. And same thing about just generic questions about God's existence. Uh, but and this is the stasis that Christian apologists who are arguing with atheists are frequently at. Because, of course, the atheist doesn't believe in God. So the persuasive goal here is to convince the person to believe in God so or to believe in the resurrection. That's the first stasis. The second stasis is the stasis of definition. Suppose you are a Christian and you're disagreeing with a Muslim. Now, this kind of argument is a little bit different than the argument you would have with um an atheist, because both the Christian and the Muslim believe God exists. The question is, well, what kind of God exists? Is God a trinity like the Christians believe? Or is God, you know, this singular entity, uh, you know, one hypostasis? Well, you're arguing about the definition of a thing. And so that's the stasis of definition. Uh, Suppose, however, you meet someone who thinks that this issue just isn't all that important. Maybe he thinks everybody goes to heaven, so it doesn't matter what God you worship. Or, or maybe you're talking to somebody who thinks God is evil and undeserving of our worship. So in that case, you're at a third stasis. Uh, whipping out the cosmological argument is not going to get you anywhere in this conversation. Because implicitly, the person already exists that God exists. You even agree on what kind of God exists. You just disagree about the morality of or the importance of this topic. Uh, and this is the stasis of quality. Uh, so when you're dealing with somebody who's dealing with like the emotional problem of evil, as we like to call it, uh, this is what this stasis is. Uh, they may have in intellectually accepted, okay, God exists, but he's evil and he hates us. And so the challenge here is not to say, well, God really exists. It's to say, no, God is good and he cares for his creation, even though a lot of times it doesn't seem like it. But there is one last stasis you can get to. And, you know, let's say you convince your friend that God exists, that God is a trinity and that God is good. There's still one last step, right? 
you got to convince your friend to take action. It's not enough to just know all this stuff in your head. You have to have faith. You have to believe in your heart. And this stasis of taking action is called the stasis of policy. Um, getting somebody to do something, whether that's praying a prayer, getting baptized, attending church. Um, and so if the person knows all these things, but is having some anxiety and saying, I don't know if I want to commit, you know, the persuasive challenge in that situation is to get past this point of stasis of policy. So the great thing about stasis theory is that it's useful for identifying the point of clash. It's useful for making an argument productive because you know what objection you need to overcome rather than talking in circles about two different things. And that will, so if you understand like stasis theory and Aristotle's theory alone, uh, you'll be way past the machine gun method and you'll be a long way into a lot closer to pre presenting your ideas in a refined and artful way. Uh, so any questions about that? Just a clarification. So you have basically four different situations where someone approaches this conversation and it's really important to understand, I guess, what issue they're having, what they don't understand, what they disagree with. And if you don't have that, then you're kind of wasting your time talking to them because you're talking about two different things. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. That's the basics of stasis theory. All right, cool. All right. And can you give us uh, just general tips that you have for us to, uh, to make a convincing argument? Yeah, there is one principle above all other principles when it comes to persuasion, and that is that you must work with the grain of human nature and not against it. God designed our minds in a certain way. And when you fight that design, you're probably going to lose. Becoming a convincing uh, person means becoming a student of human nature. And this is where that listening more than talking Thing comes in, being slow to speak and quick to listen. Uh, and what does this mean practically? Uh, well, that, that listening part is really important. And get a sense of who a person is and where they're at. And take these things into account when you're communicating with them. If you know somebody hates the color purple, don't wear a purple shirt when you're trying to convince them of something. Um, don't Talk about movies and stuff if somebody doesn't watch movies. Uh, take into account the wants and needs of other people. And apart from like individual quirks, there are also general facts of human nature. Uh, and this is something that psychologists of persuasion spend a lot of time on. You know, it, for example, it takes effort to think. So the more effort it takes to comprehend your argument, the less likely it is to be persuasive, right? Because the brain doesn't like having to expend a lot of effort on stuff. So if you can make your argument easily slide into the audience's mind, it's more likely to get through. And this is why advertisers spend so much time trying to simplify their message down into the easiest and most compact form. Uh, they add little stuff like jingles and turn it into images or stories and because this penetrates the mind better than abstract logic in fact jesus was the all-time master at this uh, his favorite way of communicating was with parables he loved to frame his arguments as stories so if you look at the general way jesus communicated he would uh, look at the people in his audience and he would cast them as characters in a story and then he would tell a story that 
whose plot explained their relationship to God. And I really like the parable of the prodigal son, partly for this reason. Timothy Keller's exegesis on this narrative is really good at breaking down uh, how Jesus does this. The basic idea is that when you look at the parable of the prodigal son's uh, context, Jesus was talking to a crowd full of self-righteous Pharisees and sinners and tax collectors. So what does he do? Well, he could have just gone on this long discourse about how terrible um, hypocrisy is, like he has done in other cases. But instead, he tells this amazing story. He talks about how um, a prodigal son dishonored his father and takes his inheritance and squanders it. And you know, the son finally decides, you know what, I would be better off being a slave in my father's house than I would be just wandering out here destitute. Um, so the younger son comes back. And you know, he's about to launch into the speech he's prepared to try and convince his father to take him back. And what does the father do? He runs out to meet him. He grabs him. He puts the ring on his finger. He throws a feast. And then the, the elder brother comes out, right? You know, the elder brother is like, he's ticked off at dad. And he says, I work for you all the time. You never even give me a goat. And your wretched younger brother comes back. who's wasted family considerably reduced our fortune and what do you do you just accept him back you know, who does someone does something like that and the father says you know i love you i love you both uh, but you know the younger son was lost and now he's found so come on in you know enjoy the feast so the story ends with the tension of will the elder brother come in and join the feast or is he just gonna sit out in the cold well who are these characters? The prodigal son is the sinners and the tax collectors. The Pharisees are the elder brother. And once you grasp your place in the story, the message hits you. And that's really penetrating. Uh, Jesus does this very often. It often takes a minute for the Pharisees to figure it out. But when it does, it enrages them because they know that he's actually talking about them. And it also gives great hope to the tax collectors and the sinners in the audience because it lets them know that God loves them too and he's willing to take them back. And the father, of course, is Jesus. So this is like Jesus's modus operandi, his way of communicating and arguing. He always liked to do it in stories as opposed to a lot of these more formal uh, disputations. He does those sometimes, but for the most part, it's you know, with these stories because they make the abstract concrete. He's working with the human nature God created us with. So, yeah, that's, that's the, really uh, that's I was going to say that's like I was just going to say that's super powerful as far as uh, now. What an interesting story. I've never heard it like that. Um, I think of I don't know if you've seen The Chosen, but, um, you know, Matthew is the tax collector and he's hated by his family. Everyone hates him. But, you know, he grew up a Jew and he's, you know, he's more of a friend to the Romans than he is than his own brothers and family. And uh, that's that's so crazy. That's so crazy to think about, you know, you know, God's the father welcoming us back. That had to be crazy for them. Yeah. And one, one of the things that's really amazing about Jesus and why he was the all time great communicator is because he could not only do this and tell a story in a really compelling way, but he could send multiple messages with the same story and shield and unveil different truths to different audiences at the same time. 
uh, you know, when he actually talks about parables and stuff, he talks about, you know, why do you speak in parables? You know, he says, so that those who are supposed to hear understand and those who don't will heart, their hearts will be hard. So Jesus was able to achieve all these communication goals with one message and nobody uh, before or since has ever lived up to the power of Jesus as a communicator. That's awesome. But uh, I, I interrupted you. Uh, uh, let's see. Okay. Yeah. Um, ready to keep going? Yeah. Yeah, of course. All right, cool. All right. So how would you say your approach changes when, you know, you already know the person you're talking to, you already have a relationship, you, um, you know, they already trust you. How does that change? Um, yeah. So this is somebody who disagrees with you, right? Um, well, in a lot of ways it doesn't, um, because these principles of persuasion are fairly general. Uh, but when you know the person disagrees with you and you have a relationship, a lot of that ethos work is already done. So maybe jump a little bit closer into August. Of course, this is assuming that um, this, of course, is assuming that they're friendly. A lot of times we don't get a choice in talking to people we disagree with. Uh, sometimes we have to face what is called the technical term is a hostile audience. And this is an audience that just doesn't want to listen to you. Uh, they might even hate you. Uh, unfortunately, we ideally in an ideal world, we never talk to a hostile audience. We just talk to audiences that are open to being persuaded by us. Uh, but the reality is a lot of times you do have to talk to a hostile audience. Moses had to talk to a hostile audience. Jeremiah had to talk to a hostile audience. Jesus talked to a hostile audience. Uh, you don't always get to pick your battles. And one of the things that makes a hostile audience difficult is because the kind of disagreement they have is intractable. It's not a kind of disagreement that can be solved by persuasion, at least not definitely not in one conversation. Uh, and intractable disagreement is very close to like the biblical idea of having a hardened heart. Because, you know, when you have a hardened heart, it doesn't matter. It, when, it could be God himself speaking to you and you won't listen because your heart's hardened. It doesn't receive the truth that it should receive. And not every um, intractable disagreement warrants that kind of theological language, but it is a very close uh, parallel. So if you're in a situation like that, where it's just like, this is not going anywhere, um, I'm not gonna persuade this person, I think you would probably be better served trying to build a relationship than prove a point. Um, maybe, uh, you know, to extend the agricultural metaphor the Bible likes to use, till the soil instead of immediately planting seeds. You know, because if you just try to jump straight into proving a point, eh, it's just going to bounce off. And now, of course, if you, in the very worst situation, if you are in a speaking situation where you can't persuade this person and you cannot build a relationship with them, then I'd say that it's time to reevaluate re what your speaking goals are there. The martyr Stephen did not have a chance of persuading the people who were uh, putting him on trial. 
but he still spoke. And what he chose to speak on was he chose to speak in a way that would glorify God, uh, regardless of what the people in that room did or thought. And his words have echoed down through the ages uh, because he chose to prioritize God over winning the hearts of men. And so when you're stuck in a situation like that, where it seems hopeless, you just got to speak God's words and, uh, and trust that God's going to make them count in the end. And this is, in fact, you know, a big part of the Jewish rhetorical tradition. My advisor at Wake Forest, Meg Zulik, she wrote a great paper called The Active Force of Hearing. And she noted that in the Jewish tradition, the responsibility of persuasion falls on the audience and not the speaker. This is Jesus's he who has a hear, let him hear thing. It's not Jesus's fault if you don't accept his message. It's your fault because you weren't listening. And in the same, uh, we see a similar idea when God approaches, I believe it was Ezekiel or Jeremiah, you know, the watchman on the wall metaphor, that it's the watchman's responsibility to warn the city that calamity is coming. It's the city's fault if it doesn't take the warning to heed. So if you do your level best and nothing changes, there's no blame on you. The blame is on the person who rejects your message as, um, as God said to Samuel, you know, the people haven't rejected you, Samuel, they rejected me. And when the people reject the gospel from you, they're not, they're not really rejecting you. They're rejecting the God who is trying to speak through. you. So, yeah, that's what I have to say about that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Of course. Um, yeah. On one hand, like, you know, not everyone's going to accept what we have to say. That's that's abundantly obvious. On the other hand, um, you know, that's why we're here, right? We're to, yeah. to, to learn how to communicate better. So we don't have to worry about that side, you know, make it make it so that you're communicating so well that, you know, if you're presenting your argument well, that they'll accept it. And if they don't, then, you know, that's all we can worry about specifically is like evangelizing because, you know, they say, you know, you know, don't don't worry about evangelizing because God's the one who does the saving. You know, don't worry about your method. Well, first you have to work around your method and make sure you're representing Christ well. But but in the same way, it is a little true that, you know, um, well, actually, I don't want to get into soteriology that quick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, anyways. Um, yeah. So anyways. Um, so, you know. When on the topic of bias, um, you know, people aren't going to listen. Um, I we've heard a lot of like, you know, everyone's biased. You know, we're not rational robots. Um, can you talk about whether that is true that we are actually all biased, or and um, and what we can do about that? Yeah. Um, so one thing we have to understand is that God did not create us to just sit around and debate all day. Uh, he created us to go out and have a life. You know. <laughs> Uh, he created us to grow food and uh, play games with each other and enjoy each other's company. Uh, and the fact that our minds are made to do all this stuff means that they're not like perfectly hardwired to think statistically about all problems and this stuff, which means that sometimes um, our way of solving problems in one area of our life tends to cause problems for how we solve them in another area. And these systematic errors are called biases. 
so a good way of understanding this is that philosophers for a long time have divided the soul in two, right? You know, they say there's two faculties. There's the reason, then there's the passions. And all philosophers in the good Platonic strand are like, reason is good, passions are bad. You know, passions are what draw you away from the truth. Um, or you're like David Hume, you say, no, you know, reason is the slave of the passions. Or you know, this is a debate that's gone on a very long time. Well, in recent years, psychologists have actually taken up this topic and they've studied uh, sort of the distinction between rationality and instinct. And the general consensus uh, is reflected in books like Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, for example, is that the mind has two systems. There's system one and system two. System one is the thing that we might call like instinct or something. It's always on. It's our automatic mode. When you are driving a familiar path home from work, or you are brushing your teeth in the morning, or you are doing the laundry or something like that, you're using system one. This doesn't take a whole lot of cognitive effort. Uh, your mind is really well adapted for doing this kind of stuff. Think about how amazing it is that you can just like drive all the way back home from work and not have to think that hard about it at all. Um, but you also have activities that take a lot of work and that's system two. System two is the, the deliberate um, conscious choice and a reasoning part of our mind. So when you're trying to write a novel or solve a complicated math problem or make a really big decision, uh, that's when you resort to system two. Uh, so system one, because of you know the way God created us and the way we came about and our environmental pressures and all the different things that help shape human nature, it has certain errors. And those errors slip through to system two sometimes because system two is relying on the information system one provides. Uh, so a, a good example of this is um, a common bias called the scarcity bias, right? Robert Cialdini uh, is a really great psychologist. He identified this bias in a book called Persuasion, the Science and Practice. So the scarcity bias is that when we see there's less of something, we have this urge to get it because we intuitively think it's more valuable. Um, even though that's not always necessarily the case. Uh, you see this happen a lot in sales. I am a big uh, audiobook fan, so I go on Audible a lot. You know, that's where I get my audiobooks. But every so often, Audible will have a sale. And they'll have like all this list of titles and beside it, they'll put a timer and the timer is slowly counting down. And what this does to you is you think, oh, you've only got, you know, four more hours before this book is no longer on sale. And then you'll have to pay full price for it. It creates this need and you're just like, oh, man, I've got to get the book. Um, but in reality, is that audiobook really a scarce resource? No. It's like electrons and stuff. You know, it's, it's not going to disappear anywhere. It, it, in all laws, there's going to be another sale in five weeks or something. So this is just a way of tapping into those errors in human nature that come about. Because we've grown up in a world where scarce things often are valuable. You know, when there's not a lot of food, we intuitively think, oh, man, we need to be more careful with how much food we're eating. We'll save some for winter and stuff like that. And um, 
these just carry over into other areas of our life. So no, we are not uh, rational robots, as you know, you said. We are people. We're mortals who live and act and have feelings and eat sandwiches and debate the existence of God and all these other wonderful things God made us to do. Are there ways around this? Well, you can make yourself aware of your biases. You can say, uh, you can hear, oh, is this thing really scarce or do I just think it's scarce? Am I, am I being manipulated somehow? Yeah, you, you can do that and that will provide some protection. But at the base of it all, there is no running away from human nature. You are what you are. And that's what God made us to be. And we just kind of have to accept that. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so when when we're debating these people or trying to give our our argument for why we believe what we believe and they they might seem to have some type of bias or you know as you said everyone has bias so we have to take some type of approach that you know addresses that um what would you say is a good approach we can take with that in mind yeah so uh first of all uh, the good news is i'm not aware of any one bias that will prevent somebody from uh believing your argument uh so we don't have to worry so much about that, but what often happens is there's a combination of biases that come together that make a productive conversation really difficult. So, for example, um, we all like to be liked by people who do the things we like. We all want to be famous with the crowd we want to be in with. We all want to be popular, which produces a bias in us to accept only things that make us popular with that crowd and to say only things that make us popular with that crowd. And this sort of uh, trend results in the phenomenon a lot of people call virtue signaling. Um, well, a conversation where two people are just virtue signaling back and forth and talking about how great they are and how bad the other side is, that's not a conversation that's going to go anywhere. You're not going to persuade anybody of anything. Uh, and uh, Justin Tosi and Brandon, uh, Brandon Warmke are two philosophers, and they have a really great book on this called Grandstanding, The Use and Abuse of Moral Talk. So how do you get out of that pit? Like, how do you deal with somebody whose biases just seem really strongly against you? This is a situation where you need to take a step back. And instead of going straight to the heart of the issue, dig around the edges and try to broaden your opponent's horizon. So, for example, you know, I know your channel talks a lot about Genesis and the age of the earth and things like that. You know, a very important topic, but this is one of those things where people have really strong feelings. And a lot of times there's like a social cost to changing your mind about this kind of thing. If you're really big into one community or the other, and you say, you know, gee, you know, maybe that other guy's right. You have an incentive to not change your mind because uh, whether that's right or wrong, the fact of the matter is you're human and you're vulnerable to these human biases. So if you're on the other side, what do you do about that? Well, there's a great theory called social judgment theory, and we don't have to get into the nitty gritty mechanics of how social judgment theory works here. But the idea is that everybody has a range of acceptable beliefs. So 
if your opponent is a young earth creationist, well, our young earth creationist friend might not accept the belief in the big bang or like carbon dating. So that would be outside his range of acceptable beliefs. But what might be inside his range of acceptable beliefs is the inerrancy of scripture. So instead of at the next argument coming with like lots of data on the reliability of a carbon dating, which is just going to make feel further skepticism towards the scientific establishment. Um, talk about how, you know, maybe the word day in Genesis doesn't necessarily have to mean like a 24 hour day. Maybe it means something longer than that. Maybe it means something completely different than what our culture would ordinarily think of as a day. And that would be in maybe changing his mind on that would be within his range of acceptable beliefs. And so that moves it the scale just a little bit this way, right? And now there's a little bit more on this side that was open that wasn't there before. Because now suddenly, well, maybe the world didn't have to be created in six literal 24-hour days. Maybe that stands for something else. And then you can move you know, steadily towards the desired conclusion. But you have to do it that way. You have to chip away, chip away, chip away very subtly instead of going in guns blazing. So that would be a pretty good way of handling these situations where you've got like strong biases on both sides. Don't argue about the thing you really want to get to argue about the thing necessary, uh, argue about the thing that's blocking the way from having a real productive discussion. Yeah, those are really good points. So my first thoughts are, yeah, sometimes we have like, you know, family that might reject us if we take certain beliefs or friends or, what, or might lose our job, you know, me personally, um, I have to be aware that, you know, well, I guess I have to be aware that there is a certain group amount of people that will stop following me if I take certain beliefs. Like, I just have to be aware of that. And that's a really big struggle for a lot of big YouTubers and big speakers out there. Like, if your platform is built on one specific view and you change your mind, that is all your followers are going to instantly disagree with you. <laughs> Um, but I like to frame it also a different way because if you think about it as something like, um, you know, some people, they think that, um, you know, our belief in Christianity is based on, you know, the gospels or Jesus rising from the dead or evidence based on that. And then you say, Hey, uh, you know, the, the Bible, um, is wrong, um, because of, you know, something like evolution or whatever, um, someone's not going to be like, oh, well, you know, oh, I, I agree with you because the truth of the matter is that, you know, they already feel like they have really good evidence for Christianity. If they have really good evidence for Christianity, they feel like they can't believe in Christianity and evolution. So they have to, so you might be arguing about, you know, the evidence of one belief, but really, you know, just from a, not a psychology perspective, people aren't always aware of what they're really thinking. So, you know, there might be a hidden perception of evidence that we're not taking into account. Um, you have any thoughts on that as like how we can approach that? Yeah. Um, and this is one of those situations where if you think back to the enthamine, the enthamine works in reverse too. 
Because sometimes when somebody's using an nth meme on you, you can draw out the hidden premise. You can think to yourself, what's that middle premise that's not explicitly stated here? And maybe they don't even notice it, that that's a part of their argument. And you say, well, wait a minute, you know, really, there's this third thing that is getting in the way of our conversation. Let's talk about that um, first before we uh, tackle these other issues, because this seems to be like the real roadblock between us. Yeah, that, awesome. That that's, seems like a great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's when you get into listening, you have to be able to listen for those types of things. You can't just go spouting out your arguments and all that kind of stuff. So finally, um, when the, uh, this is a little of a bonus topic. So internet trolls, like how do we respond to them? Um, what different approaches we can, can we take? Is it, is it even worth the effort? What do you think? I am, this is one of those things that requires wisdom, but I am 99% certain that you are not biblically obligated to interact with trolls. Now, why do I think this? Well, we have a very clear record of how, uh, Jesus and the apostles interacted with trolls because they were trolled frequently. Um, they didn't call it then, but when the Pharisees like, and they snake their way up to Jesus and like, we're going to get them this time. Um, what did Jesus do? Well, he like give them a trick answer, right? You know, a trick answer to their trick question. And so I remember when I was really young reading, you know, these little disputations between Jesus and, the Pharisees and thinking, well, he didn't really answer their questions. But then I, as I got older, I realized he wasn't trying to answer their question. That's because Jesus took the people he was talking with as seriously as they took him. So if they were trying to pull one over on him, then he treated them likewise. You know, he said, you don't want to actually have a productive conversation about this, then we're, I'm just going to say what needs to be said to keep you out of the hair and not damage the people around you who are listening. Um, so I think a similar principle applies here. You know, there's lots of cases where it seems like the Bible's teaching on communication and the actual practices of biblical figures seems to conflict because we have verses like first Peter three 15. They're like, um, always have a, have a defense prepared, um, but always do so in gentleness and respect. But then what does Peter do on the sermon on Pentecost? He gets up in the middle of everybody and tells them how terrible a person they are. And you have guys like John the Baptist calling the Pharisees, you brood of vipers and uh, all kinds of like really strong language coming from the prophets. So how do we reconcile these two things? Well, I think that the, our general posture should be gentleness and respect. But if you have like 100% certain that the person you're talking with is a troll and there's not going to be any um productive conversation i think the thing to do is say hey i tried to talk with you um i've tried to be as fair as possible but it's clear that you don't want to have a conversation about this here's just the last couple of reasons why um i think this is the right position and i'm not going to respond to this conversation anymore uh, i think that's probably the best way to deal with a troll because I am 99% certain you're not biblically obligated to stick around with a troll for all time. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So in the past we talked about, you, you know, you talked about, um, you know, some of the trolls, you know, people will come on my channel and say some kinds of goofy stuff. And, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll pull Jesus on them and 
you know, troll back or say something goofy. Um, other times, you know, I've noticed that some people troll for, you know, they troll for different reasons. And I want to get your thoughts on this one. So if, if, um, well, one, actually, if people are watching or, or reading what your conversation is, that could be a good teaching point for, for other people. Uh, so, or a good example, as far as like a, a Christian way to respond. So maybe if someone trolls you, they say something mean or whatever, um, you know, you can respond in a Christian way. Um, or you can pull like, you know, Greg Kogel, like, you know, ask questions, maybe try to get them to think. Um, those are, those are two. Um, did you have any thoughts on that? One last question here. Oh, Yeah. Well, I do want to say like with Greg Kukul's book Tactics, you know, that's a great book. I highly recommend that book. Um, I keep a copy myself. Uh, but you also have to understand that there are limits to these things. You know, asking questions isn't a cure-all to somebody who's really recalcitrant to change. Because some people, I've had people try to Columbo me, and I just answered all their questions. Uh, so <laughs> so it, it has limited use. Uh, it's useful, but it's not perfect. Um, but yeah, you know, if you if God is calling you to communicate with somebody who seems like they have a really hard heart or something like that, don't ignore the call. Uh, I'm just saying that you don't necessarily have to, um, there's no obligation to just engage with trolls all the time. Uh, there are more productive uses of time. Okay. One last thing. So some people take Jesus's talks with the, the Pharisees and other people that disagreed with him. And they see that he's a bit harsh with them or, you know, John, even, you know, as you said, brood of vipers and, or yeah, all that kind of stuff. And some people take that as it's okay to be mean, essentially. Like, you know, mm. if I'm mean to them, if I'm harsh with them, it'll be a wake up call for them. Do you think this is ever an effective way to communicate? Well, again, this is one of these really tricky subjects because it's one of those places where it seems like the teaching of scripture contradicts with like the actual practice of people in scripture. Uh, we're told to turn the other cheek, um, to not lash out. Um, and at the same time, we see people who are doing this, who seem to be lashing out. Um, one thing that I think might be, I, I, I don't know if I have a definitive answer here, but I do want to, provide what I think might be a way forward in this you know, dilemma is that when we look at people like Jesus and John the Baptist and Peter, what office did they hold in the church? Well, they were teachers. It was their responsibility to demonstrate what right doctrine was and wrong doctrine is. Uh, so this is not like the average person in the church who is doing this thing. It may, and in the cases where John the Baptist and them were doing it, it may have been a necessary part of prophetic critique of the people he was talking to, because that's what John was. He was the last prophet, right? The last of the Old Testament prophets. So I think that on some occasions, that kind of harsh language is probably warranted uh, on now, there's, there's a whole field dedicated to studying this prophetic rhetoric. Um, I am not a master of this, but there's like 
tons and tons and tons of people out there who have studied this kind of thing. And in fact, there's a great book called God Mocked, which is a, a history of religious satire. And that goes into deeper, uh, a greater depth with these issues. But I would say that err towards the side of gentleness, just because of how often the Bible talks about the dangers of speaking in anger and the need to be gentle and turn the other cheek. Let that be the rule and not the exception. And I think that's the best I best answer I can give on that question, because that is a really tough question. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. All right. So I really appreciate you coming here on here today. This has been super awesome. I'm sure a lot of people are going to get something out of this. Uh, can you give us so just materials that you think that would be good for people to look into and learn more about the topic? Yeah, absolutely. Um, definitely check out Tim Muehlhoff's Winsome Conviction Project. That is a really great uh, place to look. Um, the Christianity and Communication Studies Network. I don't know how much stuff they have at a popular level, but that's a group of Christian communication scholars and a lot of them write on topics like this. Um, yeah, uh, I, I have a sub stack that I occasionally post, you know, some, uh, on this topic about, I've talked about Christian persuasion and stuff there, but, uh, now that's not quite on the level of uh, Tim Muehlhoff. Uh, if you're looking for like, disagreement between Christians, I really would recommend him. He's got some amazing stuff. Awesome. All right, David, thank you so much for coming on here. Is there anything that you would like to like advertise or are you simply doing this out of the goodness of your heart? <laughs> I'm afraid I, I have nothing to peddle. Um, <laughs> I just hope that somebody out there will uh, find it useful and they'll glorify the Lord. Amen. Amen, brother. All right. Thank you so much, David. I hope you have a great rest thank of your you, day. Thank you, Zach.